This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast peeling back layers of the cultural rainbow to reveal the black pudding beneath. For our special St. Patrick's Day release, we're talking about the interplay between Irish and American culture with famed Black 47 singer, author, playwright Larry Kerwin. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, and my lucky charms are delicious for entirely non-magical reasons. I'm Erica Spires, about half Irish by blood and about 90% in my heart. And I'm Brian Hurt, named for Irish High King Brian Boru, or possibly Chicago Bears running back Brian Piccolo. <laughs> And welcome, Larry. I'm Larry Kerwin from uh, Black 47 and many other places. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks. I know Eric is supposed to go first, but I have a Wikipedia question. It says you are Larry, quote unquote, Tim Kerwin. Yeah. Are you Tim? And if so, what's going on? You know, I've never looked at my Wikipedia thing. So I think someone put that in, but it, it's not even a joke, is it? So, all right, well, mark it down that I found an error on Wikipedia. The first. All right, Erica. Other people have told me about this. I'm thinking, Tim? Tim? <laughs> I've been called a lot of other things like asshole and everything, but Tim? <laughs> it's the worst offense you can give to Larry. We yeah. just don't know what it means. We don't know why. We just know it's, it has to be offensive, right? Yeah, must be. <laughs> Maybe it's Tiny Tim. Could it be to do with that? Uh, an ex-girlfriend or something uh, coming in? <laughs> coming in strong. I need to use this as a transition because I found myself thinking this morning, you know, we were talking about the Irish immigrant experience, how Irish culture, they of course were a very discriminated against minority for you know early 20th century, late 19th century before that. And now not so much. There's still stereotypes. There's still things to deal with. But I found I couldn't think offhand of what the offensive slang is for an Irish person. Maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mick would be one, Paddy. We turned the Paddy thing around and basically we did it in England because we were called drunken Paddies and whatever over there. So we adopted Paddy much the same way that African-Americans adopted the N-word and turned it back. We were proud to be Paddies. My mom told me that Paddy Wagon, would. it's also one of those derogatory terms where it's oh, a bunch of people named Paddy who are probably drunk and that's, that's the Paddy Wagon. Is that correct? Yeah. I've never found them, those things too insulting, but there are Irish and Irish Americans who really rail against it. To me, it sounded kind of cute. Paddy wagon. <laughs> it does sound kind of cute. But, but then it was basically we had adopted Paddy. Another word is a harp. And when I was doing research for Hard Times, now Paradise Square, I found out that in Tompkins Square Park, where I lived around that area for many years in the East Village, was called Mackerel Town because the Irish being Catholic ate fish on a Friday and people called it Mackerel Town. So insults come in many different ways. Again, I, I didn't find anything wrong about that one. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, sure, we eat fish sometimes. I like mackerel, yeah, especially smoked mackerel. It's cool. And it's just <laughs> harder for these words to retain their charge when the Irish are just not the oppressed people in America that they were. I mean, very similar to Italians, and even the worst words for Italians are still speakable, not politely, but in a way that you don't have to say 
W word instead of WAP. And it's not a word to use, but it is just not the same thing. And it says to where Irish have come in America, which is pretty different from maybe the relationship between the Irish and the English still on the other side of the ocean. An interesting thing I found when I came to New York first, especially hanging out in uh, Bay Ridge in Brooklyn, the Irish guys and Italian girls hooked up quite a lot and married. My, my brother actually married an Italian girl from Bensonhurst. But you had to be careful because Italians took the insulting words a lot more seriously than we did. And that's probably because the Irish preceded the Italians by about 50 years. So a generation or two had kind of gotten used to it. I never been, might have been called a Patty, Mick, the hell were you have to have your own self-confidence about it. If they want to call you that, they're going to call it to you. So why deal with idiots was always my way. We're so excited to have Larry on here. I met Larry two and a half years ago, I guess. I auditioned for a show that he wrote that was called Paradise Square, previously called Hard Times, and met him in California where we were doing it at Berkeley Rep, which is a really very reputable regional theater company where a lot of things start and then go to Broadway. And it is still in development. It's waiting for Broadway to reopen. But I learned so much from that particular show about Irish culture. And it just made me want to get even more involved in figuring out where my family was from and what it really means to be Irish. And as I was looking through everything, Larry, that you've done, because Larry, like we mentioned, he's a playwright, he's an author, he has a book coming out called Rockaway Blue, which we'll talk a little bit about. Also, you are a musician and a very, very popular band called Black 47, obviously with a very Irish name. And I thought, how can we link all these things together? right around the same time as St. Patrick's Day and this re the release of this podcast. And I thought, well, you seem to have your finger on the pulse of what it means to be Irish. You've explored it in so many different ways throughout your career, and you're a wonderful educator about it as well. So why don't we, we just start a little bit with what do you feel like? Do you feel like an Irish American? Do you feel like an Irishman or just pure American now because it's just that melting pot that's hit you all over the place? Like, what does it mean to you? I never really taught that much about it because I kind of was in a universe of one in a certain way. I always just did what I felt like doing. I thought that was a great achievement in life because I could have fallen into a trap in Ireland and, you know, got a job there and got married and stayed. But I really wanted to see the world. I came from a, a family of sailors on one side, and it was always people going and coming back. And I guess I wanted to be one of those rather than one of the ones who stayed at home. But I was raised by an old grandfather who had a great command of Irish history and just of Irish ways. He was born in 1880. His name was Thomas Hughes, and he left school at 13 to be apprenticed to his father as a headstone maker. But he had this great talent, and he never received a lesson of any sort, but he could sculpt anything he felt like, you know, take a piece of stone and turn it into a statue. And I spent a lot of time with him and listening to his stories. So a lot of that stuck. I thought myself, too, that you can learn anything. You know, he left school at 13, yet he had all this vast knowledge. So when I came to, say, reading Ulysses by James Joyce, which is a hard, bloody book, I kind of knew it because he was born in 1882, Joyce was, and my grandfather in 1880. And they were dealing with the same subject matters and the same words. So 
you had an entry into it. So when I came to the U.S., I was like every upstart Irish guy. I thought, you know, that Irish Americans were slower because they spoke slower than we did. But very quickly, I learned that, you know, through meeting so many Irish Americans, that there was a great knowledge there too. And then when it came to forming Black 47, which I did with a, a New York City cop, Chris Byrne, who was a, a detective, but he was also played the Ellen Pipes. And he also was a, a great Brooklyn rapper. So, you know, everything had spread out and all the different cultures had come together in New York. And I just took advantage of all those cultures, not just the Irish side of it. Like I was just looking at my book and I had chosen two pieces of poetry. And one was by William Butler Yeats, but the other was by C.P. Cavafy, who is a, a Greek poet who grew up in Alexandria. So, you know, the world is there in New York to use anything. So maybe I do have my finger on the Irish American pulse in that I traveled every state and played pretty much in every state in the country. And I was interested in how different each Irish American group is. Like the one in California, in San Francisco, say, is totally different than the sad side of Chicago, is totally different than the sad side of Boston, is very different than the Irish in Houston, you know, and... So I guess in a certain way, I was able to borrow from all them too. And, you know, just have an encyclopedia of different things. And you just use them whenever you want to. Like with the new book, you know, I, I dealt with Rockaway. We can deal with that later. But to answer your question, that one. It's complex. One, it's complex. <laughs> but li life is complex, isn't it? Absolutely. But I, I think that's like, you know, as we look at this subject from a vantage point of popular culture as well the popular culture really dumbs down what it means to be Irish, I think. And so that's very interesting, of course, that you've had this other perspective where you've seen all these different types of Irish people and it means something a little bit different. Yeah, but popular culture dumbs down everything. Dumbs down Italians, it dumbs down everything. We're getting, we're getting dumber through popular culture than than. Did you smarter. hear that, Mark? Shut it down. <laughs> well, I'm, no, I'm not saying that. No, I'm not saying in <laughs> relation to you, but look at what's going on in the country with the conspiracy theories. I mean, yeah. I, I know so many people who actually think that Trump won and there's no way of persuading them. Because if you say, well, look it up, they say, that's the media. They've got you fooled, but they don't fool me. I know Trump won. How do you deal with that? I don't know if we can say it's at all the same cultural forces that account for the adoption of that kind of thinking as the fact that what America has taken from Ireland is basically a very bastardized party culture, right? That I read you writing somewhere else that actually the celebrations that you took part in there were very religious and stern. And, you know, the fact that America has taken St. Patrick's Day to be this bacchanalia of green beer that green wasn't even the color like at least this is when my daughter took irish dance classes one of the speeches they would give to the audience was actually the saint patrick's day color is blue and america screwed it up and made it green and now they think it's green back in ireland and it's all just this weird cultural game of telephone i don't know how to account for that other than this yes this universal dumbing down force i've heard about the blue thing too but I don't know about that. I mean, <laughs> every time I go back to Ireland and when I'm flying in, flying in over Shannon, I 
literally can't believe the numbers of green, how many different shades of green there are. And it takes me a couple of days to get used to it again. I mean, I grew up with it. But when I come back, it just, wow, look at these colors of green. I feel like I'm tripping again. Well, then the fact that I have that, (laughs) the story is probably itself a dumbing down, a game of telephone, all these things in these Irish dance classes that these things that are given as something inherited from Ireland. And then we found out that it, no, it was just something somebody came up with in the 80s in America. Like it's not even (laughs) related to Ireland at all. I think it was all a Ronald Reagan plot that he started in the 80s. And that was it. We're suffering from it ever since. I don't want to push back too hard on this idea of dumbing down, but I I feel like there is this implicit argument that Irish culture in Ireland is this pure thing and that however it changes elsewhere in the world, Mark used the word bastardization, but can it not just be sort of evolving globally and it has sort of these patterns that go back to Ireland and if indeed green wasn't as big a deal a hundred years ago as it is now, it is true Irish culture in part because these are people who have authentic Irish roots, if not even were people who were born there who are kind of coming and going and it's just this globalization and somewhat of a homogenization as well. Irish seems much bigger than than Ireland to me. Yeah, and I think that's the root of it. After being in the U.S. for three or four years. And then when it comes to seven years, if you live in a country for seven years, you're never going back. I realized I was here three years illegally. I'm an original illegal alien, not just undocumented. I chose to come here and be illegal. So I didn't go back for three years till I got my papers settled because I didn't want to risk not getting back in. And when I went back after living on the streets of the East Village, you know, I lived on Avenue B and Third Street, which was the center of heroin in New York at that point. And when I went back, it just seemed very strange to me, Ireland did, you know, it was a member of the European Union at that point, but it still hadn't kind of caught up to the 20th century. And when I returned to New York after that, I really felt that and also because of the, the potato famine in 1845 through 1850, that all these people had left. To me, they were Irish and their descendants were all Irish too. So I, I never bought the whole thing about Irish American. I see everyone as Irish. So if someone in Brooklyn wants to have green beer, why not? You know where I first drank green beer was in, in West Virginia, of all places. I got stuck in West Virginia on one St. Patrick's Day, playing in a college down there, and they brought up green beer for us. And then I realized that you can drink this. It tastes good. It just looks different to me. So if someone wants to do that with their heritage, that's cool with me. You know, Everyone who has Irish blood in them is Irish. I like that. When I first visited Ireland. I remember feeling like nervous because I wanted to know more about my family's culture and get to know more of what those roots would have been. But I also was embarrassed in a very American way of like saying that I'm something that I'm not really. And, (laughs) you know, that fear of not being accepted. So it, it is very nice to have people just say like, sure, you're Irish too. Learn more. Why not get more complex? Don't don't shut people out. And I think that's something that pop culture actually can do well is at least introduce people. But it's up to us to delve further into that. Yeah. And you can look back to Ireland for it. But then you might when I went back to Ireland, say, after being three years, they're illegal. Everybody was watching Dallas. They were <laughs> nutty about Dallas back there. And 
nobody was singing Irish songs that much around there. Everybody was doing disco. You know? <laughs> There's a universal culture out there too. So you, you just should take what you want from Irish culture. But you go to Dublin and it's like, it's a big city and it's like being in New York or it's like being in London or Sydney. There's not a huge amount of difference in big cities. But if you go to Ireland, you go, I'd say to the West Coast and out to the Aran Island, then it's still, they're still crazy out there. You know, there's a, an original crazy Irish strain. <laughs> and it feels good to be back, you know, in craziness to me. Not looking at some yuppie in Dublin, you know, trying to look like someone from New York. Well, so you said universal culture, or is it a infatuation with American culture, you know, when it's done by Irish people? Because I'm surprised how, so I live in Madison, Wisconsin, and a major force here seems to be really roots music of all kind. But Irish music is an important part of that, even among people that I'm sure have no Irish blood or no, you know, no direct ties to Ireland. And I actually became, actually through a guest that we'd had on the show here talking about manga with us. So she's a Japanese studies major, got me very into the pogues in college. <laughs> I became a pogues freak for, you know, a short period, which is a band for folks that don't know that sort of a forerunner of Black 47. Apparently I'm looking at your Wikipedia that it was even their manager that discovered you guys, but they would do traditional songs in a punk rock style you know, and then sort of evolve from there. So I don't know what the appeal of whether it's like British people, Irish people, people all over the world putting on cowboy hats, if that's the equivalent of what I'm doing, sort of being into the pogues and what singing the old triangle, go jingle, jangle, and that kind of stuff. The appeal with Irish music, I think, is that it has good melodies and it's pretty lyrical. It deals with life and it deals with humor and it deals with death and it deals with broken hearts. and. That's how country music evolved. It was basically through the Irish from Southern Ireland and the Scottish Irish from Northern Ireland moving to Philadelphia. They didn't come to New York at that point. And nobody liked them in Philadelphia because they were rowdy and it was a Quaker town at that point. And they moved down into the Appalachian Mountains and they took their ballads with them down there. And then eventually those ballads started to move down into Tennessee and places like that and became country music. So I know the Pogues really well. I play with them a lot. And I have to say that they have a connection with their audience and the audience identifies with the stories that Shane told, hence their popularity. Fairy Tale of New York, one of the greatest Christmas songs of all. Right, I think. And it's actually been named that recently as more people have gotten to know Fairy Tale of New York. I've always wanted to put it in a show, but I, I tend to try to have family shows. And I know that some people don't want their kids hearing things like, you cheap, lousy faggot. <laughs> and I've never, I've never wanted to change it because I think I get that the idea of what they're saying there. It's not, you know, taking that word seriously. Yeah. So there's once again, that connection between Ireland and New York. And of course, it's one of the major ports, right? Where they first came, it was Boston, Philadelphia, and New York. And New Orleans. New Orleans and Savannah were the... That I did not know. Well, that's why in the, in the Civil War, or as Trump would say, the war between states, <laughs> you had on one side the Irish who had landed in New Orleans and Savannah, and you, on the other side, you had the Irish who landed in Philadelphia, Boston, and New York. They were shouting at each other across the battlefield, but they had to go and kill each other. 
They were the ones on the front lines. That is something that Larry's Paradise Square does deal with, is the Irish being used as cannon, literally as cannon fodder, as soon as they basically came to the U.S. and having to fight for one side or the other, even though they had just arrived. I think they show them being conscripted as they get off the boat in the movie Gangs of New York. And it's and that's true. quite a, a shocking thing, yeah. Yeah, and it, it began actually earlier in... 1845 to 1847 was the war of manifest destiny against um, Mexico. So as they're coming down off the boat, they're being offered money to join the army. And they're thinking, holy shit. Yeah, all right. And they're sent down to Mexico. But their officers were Protestant. They're Catholic. And the officers are telling them to go in and burn Catholic churches in Mexico, and they rebelled. They formed the San Patricio Brigade and went over to the to the Mexican side and fought against the U.S. and eventually were all hung for it. Then the Protestants realized Irish are not going to come fight for us anymore. We got to find a way to get them in. So they brought in Catholic chaplains for the first time, and that came about through the the war, the Mexican-American War. You jump forward 20 years, 15 years, say, to the Civil War, the chaplains are already in there, but there's still the officers are mostly know-nothings, they're from the know-nothing party, and were Protestants who hated Catholics. So it came to a head at the Battle of Fredericksburg because they basically told these Irish you got to cross this river. You got to run a half a mile up this hill. And on top of it, in great positions, are the Confederates. And of course, the Confederates mowed them down. Robert E. Lee even said, I've never seen anything like this. They kept coming. And after that, the Irish thought, no, that's no more of this bullshit. And they still went into the army, but now they wanted to go in as officers and control the thing. I like to think that all the drunken 20-somethings lining the green Chicago River are are thinking about this as they're getting hammered at 10 in the morning. Well, you know, I don't mind that because I used to make money from uh, St. Patrick's and most Irish musicians did. So when I came here first, I would play maybe four gigs. We'd start in the morning and you might start up in Connecticut or somewhere, and then come back into the city, do a gig in the afternoon. And then you go to Jersey at night and do a gig. And then we always ended up on Christopher Street. We would play a gay gig at two in the morning. So, you know, I survived and a lot of musicians survived because on St. Patrick's Day, you would make money to keep yourself going for the next month. And then Black 47 kind of, although we never got involved with that type of thing, you know, with your lucky charms or anything, we were very against that. But we were still taking advantage of the fact that on St. Patrick's Day, we're probably going to get on the Leno show or the Letterman show or Conan O'Brien or whatever. We're in with a shot of those things because they want a patty on there. And we're the chief patties in this country, patty rock and rolls in this country. So we would do some other television show first thing in the morning. Then you go to the NBC studios and do it. And then you got to do a full St. Patrick's Night two-hour show after that. So the the stamina that you needed (laughs) was tremendous. But we took advantage of it because that's the time we were 
treated as equals. It's not a good idea in this country to be seen as ethnic because they'll nail you down to the particular feast day or whatever it is that you're associated with. So what we would do is from the 1st of February, or maybe the last week in January, we would tour until the middle of April. Make as much money as you can to get you through to the summer when you start playing the festivals. And so Irish music was an economic thing, too. I want to stop a minute for a sponsor message. We are very pleased to again be supported by She's Birdie. So what is that? It is a personal safety alarm that allows you or the women in your life to venture out in the world, to run errands, to go jogging, to do the things they love with added peace of mind. They sent me a box of these. I've got it right here. They look like little USB drives, about three inches long. They're in fun colors. Comes with a really nice brass ring. So it's a very easy thing to add to one's routine. It is not like pepper spray that is going to go off or be chewed on by the dog or something. It is no danger to the user. So how it works is if you feel like you're in danger, you just hold it up, you pull the pin out, and directly at the person who's messing with you, a very loud alarm goes off. It's 130 decibels. It's like a jet engine 100 feet above you. And flashing lights, this is going to deter anybody and call attention to your situation. So very effective, easy to use, not going to go off accidentally, but they encourage you to practice with it. Until you pull the pin, the battery does not actually engage, so it'll last a long time. So this is a great new little piece of technology. I am definitely going to make my daughter take these with her when she goes away to college, and I want to make the case that this is actually a great gift idea for someone special in your life. It really says, I love you, I care about your safety, but it's also cool. It's cool looking, it is fun to practice with, it's empowering. It is not like giving someone pepper spray that you can't actually use unless there's an emergency. This is safe for all ages. So if you're anything like me, you have long since run out of gift ideas for your significant other. This is a good one. And not only can you feel good about giving one or several She's Birdie alarms to someone you care about, but Birdie also donates 5% of all profits to its partner organizations that passionately support women's safety, shelter, and health. Life is too short to be scared. Over 300,000 Birdie alarms have been sold, and they have thousands of five-star reviews. Right now, She's Birdie is offering listeners... 15% off your first purchase when you go to she'sbirdie.com slash pretty, S-H-E-S-B-I-R-D-I-E dot com slash pretty for 15% off your first purchase. That's she'sbirdie.com slash pretty. Let's get back to it. One thing that we see that's really associated, or you can say it's associated, I think it, it must be, is with Irish art having to do with suffering, but also a ton of humor. I see those two things as very linked. I think humor is, has always been a way to deal with, with the tragedy. Is that something that you see as being a truly Irish trait, using a sense of humor, but also creating art that also shows that other side, that complete suffering side, almost that country music ballad? Yeah, I do see it. But when Chris Byrne and I formed Black 47, it was no tears in your beer. Everything has to be dry eye. You know, you can suffer as much as you like and you can tell a great story, but it's not to be weepy like a lot of Irish songs were. So we tried to take the sentimentality out of it and deal with the actual suffering that people do suffer. So I get that. But I see your point, too. I'm currently adapting The Informer. Do you know that movie by John Ford? It's a famous Irish movie. And it was also a book by Liam O'Flaherty. And John Ford was actually cousins to O'Flaherty. 
And he took O'Flaherty's book and made it palatable for American audiences. And it's really interesting to see what he did with it, because Ford is a genius. But my job to come into it was, was what Eric is talking about. Liam O'Flaherty had no humor whatsoever. I mean, it's just a really rare thing. In fact, we have a name for people like that in Ireland, and you keep away from them. They're called Creepin' Jesus. <laughs> okay. If, okay, use that in a sentence. Well, not that fucking Creepin' Jesus again, you know? Here he comes yeah. into the room, you know? There's a pall comes over a room. When an Irish person walks in with no sense of humor, because for one thing, it's just a downer because he's going to be sitting there and he wants to talk about something serious, but without humor. Irish people can go from serious to sad to hilarious, just like that. It was only after Black 47 broke up that I realized that we would jump from a song about the Irish potato famine. Yeah, I'd always thought there was a kind of a firm line between sort of more of a party band, St. Patrick's Day thing, like the Pogues and U2, you know, very serious political stances. But it seems like Black 47, there's no distinction there. You can just flip back and forth. And I used to call the songs and I saw nothing weird about doing a song like the original Black 47, which is dealing with two young men crossing Ireland to try and get a boat to America to get out of this country and what they see on the way, you know? And for those who don't know what Black 47 is, it refers to 1847, the potato famine. There were three bad years, 1845, 1846. But by 1847, things had really gone bad. And uh, the people called it Black Black mean in Ireland was the worst possible. It has nothing to do with the color or anything. It's just the blackness of things. So I could do that and then just instantly get into something else. And the audience can go along with you. Larry, I came across this joke on the internet. You maybe have heard it, but I'll say it for the benefit of our (laughs) listeners as well. Saying that there are only four Irish folk songs. I think this in spirit is true of There are only four Irish songs, period, but they are, one, I had too much to drink and I regret nothing. Two is, I met a fair bonnie lass and she was bonnie and fair. Three is, we will fight the British forever and ever and ever and ever and. And number four is, I have left Ireland and I shall never be happy again. Or I've left Ireland and I'm never going back. Well, I think that's what we've heard from you is the inversion of number four. I think they all can be inverted. And I think maybe there are eight types of songs, but maybe you can't invert the British one, actually. But the other three you can. Ireland was an oral culture, so they didn't write novels and they didn't write things down that much. So everything went by language to each other. So Ireland has more... Nobel winners for English than England does. So we took the language and we fucked with it and turned it up on its ear. That's why Joyce is the greatest writer ever. He was able to do something with language that no one had done before. That's a great fuck you, isn't it? That's a really great fuck you. But who's counting, right? (laughs) (laughs) We've got a lot of fuck yous. It's like, you won't let us speak Irish? All right, we'll take your language and then we'll one-up you on it. Yeah, well, they got rid of Irish. and, (laughs) And Irish is such a beautiful language. You know, I don't speak it very well, but when I'm speaking it, I feel a different person. I feel gentler Mm. and I feel like a nicer person than I am. (laughs) 
You know, there's something about being in New York and dealing with it that you get an edge. But I've even noticed it with other people in New York. When they start to speak Irish, there's a warmth comes around you. It's strange, isn't it? The、mm-hmm. languages should、yeah. do that. So I suppose what you're saying is we got our revenge through taking the English language and messing around with it. But to get back to your point, though, Brian, is there's more than four, eight songs. There's Legion, because the Irish dealt with everything in their songs. I mean, there's everything from grave robbing to fucking corpses. You know, it's like everything is in Irish songs. You know, and it's probably why a lot of people like Irish music because it deals with every subject. You can find a song to suit your mood and to suit the way you see the world or your worldview. And a lot of it is kind of slagging and has a kind of a Fuck you! If you don't like it, you've taken my land, you've taken my cow. But I'm in the pub here, and I'm the fucking king of this place. At least for the next couple of hours. There's that kind of thing, and that's the Irish thing. I think sometimes people just see Irish people liking to go to bars and getting shit faced and whatever. But there's a reason behind it. We're an oppressed people, and you can see the same thing with African Americans. It's like a lot of the same attitude, and that's why Paradise Square works so well, mixing Irish people with African Americans, both of them two brutalized peoples in their day, and going back to that day and. Showing how Irish women would marry black men. Now, they wouldn't do it now as much, but they did it back then. It just keeps reminding me of how much my mother's side is is so Irish, and we didn't know that it was that they were Irish until I started learning more about Irish culture. But even she grew up very poor, and her mom would get some money and say, "Okay, we can have like a decent meal for the next couple of weeks, or we can have steak tonight and beans the rest of the time." And everybody said, "Steak tonight," you know, like have have a reason to celebrate. What's the point otherwise? Yeah, that's definitely part of the Irish culture. <laughs> It's not to be careful. So you made this transition from songwriting to writing novels and plays. Can you just fill us in on sort of the arc of your career? Did you do, sort of make the jump to musicals first from writing songs for the band, and then get into straight literature, or was it a more erratic progression? It was pretty erratic. I had always read a lot and felt that I could be a decent playwright. But I was young and in New York City and on the streets and a lot of drugs and a lot of great times and when you're part of the rock and roll culture. And then at one point I decided, and this is kind of odd because I had a record deal at the time and I was in a band called Major Thinkers and one of our best friends was Cindy Lauper. We had the same manager and she was. Starting off, I mean, she wasn't starting off, but she was on her biggest scent. And I was supposed to show up for the video of "Girls Just Want to Have Fun," and I had a little part in it. But I had written a play called "Liverpool Fantasy" about the Beatles if they hadn't made it, and I had gotten a chance to have a reading of it. And I knew that to make the reading work, I was going to have to put about two solid days into the play to knock it into shape. I had to make the decision: Do I go to Cindy's video or do I do the playwright thing? So I made the decision: Do the playwright thing. I didn't know the video was going to be that big. <laughs> yeah, <man. laughs> Obviously, but but I remember making that decision. This is you got to do this if you're going to do be a playwright. You got to do it. And from then on, I stayed a musician. 
for another couple of years and we got dropped at a record label, which happens to everyone. And I had the decision to, to make then, do I start again in music? And I thought, no, now I got to do this playwright thing. And I did it for four years, writing, producing, directing, making sure, because I come from the, the punk tradition, DIY, do it yourself. Don't wait for some scumbag in the theater to say, yes, I like this, you know, find your own theater and do it. And I did that. But then I got, I remember thinking, I am getting really um, quiet. And all I want to do is write and be on my own. And one night I thought I was having a breakdown. I said, I got to go to an Irish bar. (laughs) I got to get shit faced. I got to get out of this because I'm cracking up. I could tell. And I walked up town and I was going to go to a place called Eamon Duran's up in the 50s. And I walked from Soho up to the 50s. And I was passing by a place called Paddy Riley's. And I heard the music in there. And I thought, ah, I'm dying for a drink. And I went in and it was a band playing. And they recognized me from the major thinkers. And so straight away they said, get up on stage. Could, could you do a song? I'm thinking, I'm actually having a breakdown here at this point. And the barmaid was a woman called Dimpna who became a great friend later. She said, I know what you need. And I was thinking, really? I hope you do. <laughs> and she, I was thinking, well, it's my lucky night. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it was a shot of whiskey. So she gave me a shot of whiskey and then she stayed there with a bottle and then she gave me another shot and I drank it down. She said, now get up on stage. And I'm taking orders from an Irish woman. It was like my mother talking to me. And I went up and I stayed up there for two or three hours and just playing. I hadn't played music to an audience in four years. And I was back being myself, as it were. And at the end of the night, I'm with Chris Byrne, who is the leader of this band. And he's in a bad mood. And I said, what's the matter with you, man? And uh, he said, well... My band is breaking up tonight and I have all these gigs to do and I've got a young family and I need the money. And I said, I'll do them with it. And that was, he said, what should we call ourselves? And I said, it's only one name, Black 47. And that was how it started. So from that point on in Black 47, I kept writing the plays. And as you probably notice, a huge amount of downtime in rock and roll And Black 47 was a a very party band, although we always were able to put on a great show. So I would go back to the hotel room after the gigs and write. And then after a while, I got into the novel writing because it was hard to get the plays on anymore because I couldn't take advantage of workshops or anything because we were always working on weekends or on the road for long periods. And then I took up novel writing at that point. And then eventually it seemed very easy to combine playwriting with writing songs Then I I got into musicals that way. So it is a big mishmash. So your latest work right now is uh, Rockaway Blue. Who should read your book, Larry? Why should we read your book? What it's about is 9-11 was a huge thing. It was definitely a huge thing for me. I saw the whole thing. I lived down in that area. And then for Black 47, we lost so many fans and friends. So I wanted to write a book that would 
be about the regular people who had gone through 9-11. And I came up with this family called the Murphys out in Rockaway Beach. Father and the son. Jimmy is the father. The son is Brian. Brian is 30 and he's already passed his father by in the NYPD. He's a lieutenant. And he gets killed in 9-11. And his father finds out about a year later that he was actually in the North Tower 30 minutes before planes hit. So lights go off and said, what was Brian doing there? And his trajectory in the book is to find out what his son was up to. And this leads him back to an old friend of his called uh, Youssef Ibrahim, an Egyptian-American, and to... Yosef's daughter, Fatima. And that's the story. But it's about dealing with the grief and with the pain. And how can you come out beyond that? So I guess for anyone who went through 9-11 in any sense or has a curiosity about it, well, it's about redemption. How do you get beyond this? Well, that's literally everyone of at least a certain age who was, because we all who were old enough experienced it, even if we were far flung. It was just too much of a thing not to have been impacted by even from a distance. Definitely. I also wanted to do something about Rockaway. I'd always loved Rockaway itself. I read the beginning of the book, and I should tell listeners that despite your nice words about James Joyce, it does not read like James Joyce. So that's a good thing. (laughs) It is mellifluous. (laughs) It's not hard to read. I tried to keep the story, you know. But I've I've always believed in the Greeks thing from character comes story. Obviously, I've been thinking about this for a long time. So the characters were very clear in my head, the father and the son, with this difficult relationship. And yet the father has to go out and find out what the son was up to. And will that totally ruin his reputation? Will it wreck his family also? So listeners, you can save 30% with code 09FLYER. That's F as in Frank, L-Y-E-R, 09FLYER. So Cornell University Press to get Rockaway Blue. Or you can get it on Amazon, or you can get it at any um, store. And if you want an autographed copy, you just go to um, black47.com and go to shop there. We're selling it too. I'm actually doing something different with it too, because there's going to be no you know, readings for the next three months or so, or performances. I came up with a, a thing where there's going to be three separate little extracts from the book that deal with the characters. And I wrote three new songs to amplify the characters in the book. Very different than musical theater where you're trying to drive the story. They're more impressionistic ideas about the characters. And I've combined those six pieces into a, a little story. But it'll be at the Black 47 Facebook page or my Facebook page or whatever. So multiple ways to to hear your songs, your new songs. We're about at the end of our, our time here, but to get back to your Wikipedia page, which you've already established, is is really clear. And over the course of our discussion, your bona fides as a polymath between a musician and a novelist and a playwright and a director, the, the last line of your, your bio there is that you're an occasional footballer. And for our American listeners, that's soccer player, uh, generally as a striker with his left foot. So are you are you any good? I mean, were you? That's what it says. It really says that. Yeah. Somebody's getting in there and really messing with me. I gotta look at this. So are you a wing, a striker? What's your... uh... I'm actually a Manchester United suffering fan. Oh my God. 
Yeah, I suffered with Manchester United since I was a kid. (laughs) So true to your Irish roots of suffering, you had to pick Man U. Well done. Well, there there were many good years, but there's been a lot of suffering since then. (laughs) No, I don't play soccer anymore. In fact, I was never very good at it. I don't know who this person is that's... (laughs) (laughs) Vandalizing your page. It's very innocuous, so that's okay. It could be a lot worse. I shudder to think Uh, if somebody really nasty gets in there. I better keep an eye on this. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much, Larry. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you want to hear more from Larry, check out his Facebook page or his Wikipedia page. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you, uh, listeners. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. Yeah. Happy St. Patrick's Day. And suffer on. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network. And it's also presented by OpenCulture.com.